Will you turn in your Bibles, please, with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Now, if you need a Bible this morning, simply slip up your hand. Ken will be happy to place one in your hands. And we are going to be reading verses 14 through 18 this morning uh, together. I'll begin by reading verse 14, if you'll take verse 15, and so forth. Uh, But can I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 reads, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Verse 15. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, once again, we bow before you today. We uh, place ourselves under the gentle and yet firm hand uh, of the work of your Holy Spirit this hour. We We open our eyes and our ears and our heart to what the Spirit is saying to the church as we partake of your word today, we ask. Lord, have your way with this. Open our understanding that we might understand the scripture as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you happen to be new with us uh, over the last several weeks, we've been you know, plodding through this new book, great book, Book of Hebrews. And as we took a look last week uh, and prior to that, that the theme initially throughout the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ, him being superior to the prophets, him being superior to angels. Uh, we uh, re- reminded ourselves last, I was thinking of a word, reminded ourselves last week that the author in uh, chapter 2 takes a brief time out in verses 1 through 4 to give the first exhortation Throughout this book, he gives us the first warning of seven warnings in the book of Hebrews that we should therefore give more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. In verse 5 of chapter 2, he picks up his thought process again about Christ being superior to angels and that even though it may be a curious thing to how do we see Jesus, he tells us in uh, 
verse 9 of chapter 2, that Jesus can be seen. He says, but we see Jesus. And we took time last week to talk about the ways that the text, in verses 5 all the way through 13, talks about how Jesus can be seen. That he can be seen as the one who will reign in the world to come. The one who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while. That he was the one crowned with glory and honor. That he is the captain of their salvation. That he was made perfect through suffering. And that he is the one who sanctifies or sets apart the believer. And so... Having been able to clearly draw a picture for the reader, the author now gets back to one of his central points, which is, of course, Jesus and what he has done and what he will do. If you remember, the book of Hebrews was written primarily to Hebrews, to Hebrew Christians that had a long uh, understanding along and a deep connection with uh, the worship of God. And yet, now that Christ has come, a need to clarify for these Hebrew Christians the superiority of Jesus Christ. So I draw your attention back to these first five verses that we read as the author will deal with two things primarily in in these five verses. Number one, he will deal with what Jesus has done. And he refers to him as he himself. Notice the capital H on the pronoun there in verse 14 where it says that in that, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, both capitalized, both the pronouns referring to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's going to emphasize in these verses what Jesus has done and what he will do. And I would like to take us through that this morning. And the hope is, is that every time we touch and revisit in our understanding of the word of God, what Christ has done and what he has promised that he will do, that we go out back into the world of our daily lives, our our work scenarios, our coming and going with friendships and all that we would do with a deeper and greater understanding that all we are to do, we are to do is unto the Lord. So first, what he has done. There are three things that the author points out. In verse 14, we find that firstly, he has shared in the same. Notice that, that inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Of course, referring to the incarnation, the taking upon himself of flesh and blood. Did you know, interestingly enough, 
that the National Forensic Science Technology Center, known as the NFSTC for an acronym, has reaffirmed throughout the decades that there are no two fingerprints the same. Even in identical twins, there is no two fingerprints that are the same. The imagination and sovereignty of, of Almighty God in the uncountable billions of souls that have been created since the beginning of time, there are no two fingerprints that are the same. You are special to God. I am special to God. When he formed you in your mother's womb, as Jeremiah says, he knew you even before you were formed in the womb. And so often young people today have a uh, an identity question. Who am I? Where do I really fit? Gosh, I know for me, it you know, hit me early on, my early teen years, without a father in the house, no, no real, uh, you know, solid guidance going on there. I was wavering all over the boards. Like, well, maybe I'll be a hippie. Maybe I'll be a musician. Maybe I'll be whatever. And the fact of the matter is, is that uh, statistics tell us that oftentimes when it comes to young people coming to faith in Christ and grabbing a hold of their identity in the Lord, that, that often happens at early ages, somewhere in between, uh, I think they said like 8 to, to 18, 8 to 19. No two fingerprints the same. Blood types. We have A, B, A, B, and O, right? God creating the, the flesh to regenerate every 27 days. Did you know that if you scrape yourself or, or cut them, your skin replaces itself every 27 days? And in his infinite wisdom, placed within you and I, his most precious creation, a heart, an involuntary muscle. You don't have to tell your heart to beat. It beats automatically and pumps that blood through your veins, keeping you breathing and alive. Can you imagine Joseph and Mary in that stable as she gives birth to the Son of God. Any of you who are moms here immediately identify with that even more so than us who are fathers, but through the birth canal, a physical birth canal, he who was of the Holy Spirit, conceived of the Holy Spirit, it just, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness that he was manifest in the flesh. He came and shared in the same. He took on flesh and blood. A physical identification to fully identify with 
every human being, with you and with me. Some verses that we're familiar with about the Incarnation. Isaiah 7, 14, The Lord gave you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, meaning God with us. The writer of the Gospel of John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14 of John's Gospel, the first chapter, he says, And the Word became what? Flesh. He took on flesh and blood. Isaiah 53, 12 tells us that he poured out his soul unto death. He absolutely, in the fullest measure, because the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself also shared in the same. Amazing. Something else that he has done, we read there in verse 14 as well, it says that through death that he might destroy him who had the power of death. This is what he has done. Destroyed him who had the power of death. A couple of things you might want to take note of is the word had is in the past tense. And it speaks, of course, of what took place at the fall. Romans 5.12 tells us that by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, therefore all of sin. In other words, you and I recall the account is that it was God's initial intent for his most precious creation, though he was complete in himself and needed nothing, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, complete Elohim from the beginning, and yet wanting fellowship, wanting what we all desire, to not be alone, And so he creates mankind so that he can enjoy fellowship with this creation and sets mankind in the perfect environment, the Garden of Eden, and gives mankind one don't. Here's, here's your entire world. You can have everything here is for you the one thing you may not do and that I command that you not do is that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. His desire was that man would not know evil. His desire was for unbroken fellowship and yet in his omniscience he knew because the Bible tells us Christ, the Son of God, was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Try and wrap yourself around that. And so, the account is that the serpent, who was the devil, came and 
speaks into the ear of Eve, has God really said that in the day that you'll eat of it? He just doesn't want you to be like him. He's withholding something from you. How many of us in this room and maybe watching at home have tried to wrestle through the mental logistics of thinking that the only reason that I'm not you know, completely happy in life is because something is being withheld from me? Oh, if I just had this or was able to do that or whatever, then, then life would be full. And, and, you know, God must just kind of be holding that back from me. There in the garden is the whisper of the adversary of God that says, God didn't really mean what he said. And so Eve was deceived as I know I have been, maybe you have been before as well, was deceived by that lie and took of the fruit and she ate and she gave to her husband and he did eat. And their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. And You know the account. And so they tried to cover their sin by covering themselves and then they're running from God, and God knows where they are. Adam, Adam, where, where are you? Familiar King James, where art thou, right? As if God didn't know where they were. But what he wanted was an answer. As what he wants from you and I is, is a dialogue. It's not a one-way street. He doesn't just want, you know, speak and never be spoken to, to be heard but never listen? No. And so, from that point forward, sin entered the world and death by sin. Physical death as well as spiritual death. that mankind became separated from his creator. And in order, in order to not keep that separation unending, we see Almighty God, I mean, it's even there in, in a foreshadow that in order to clothe themselves, they killed an animal and blood was shed. And moving fast forward, as, as God speaks to a man named Abraham, which of course is in our text as well, and then a, a, a nation of people that are to worship this same God are formed, and he gives unto them a, a running logbook of how they can stay in fellowship with him through the offering of sacrifice. Yet death remains real. Do you remember what Hannah wrote uh, as Hannah in 1 Samuel? She was praying for a child and she was barren and couldn't have children. And, and she, as she cried out to the Lord, the Lord heard her and blessed her and gave her a child. In 1 Samuel 2 verse 6, 
in Hannah's song. It's a beautiful song. Read it sometime. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she says, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings one down to the grave and brings up. In other words, Almighty God is the one, actually the author of life. He's the one who gives life and has established that in the fall of man, death has become a reality, the physical death, to mankind. But remember the struggle with, with Job and, and the devil is talking to God and, and God says regarding Job, but have you considered my servant Job? A righteous man. And Satan says, yeah, but he just worships you because of the stuff you give him. And so God then gives a limited authority to the devil to, all right, well then, all of his things you may have but his life spare. In other words, God is still in control of the amount of uh, adversarial activity of the enemy of the devil in the life of his children. And we find an interesting Greek word there in the word destroyed. Notice it says there, it says, he destroyed him who had the power of death. The original word means to render ineffective or to render idle. In other words, Christ and his work upon the cross, his death and burial and resurrection now has made ineffective and made idle the work of Satan himself as it relates to the child of God. Doesn't mean we aren't often bothered. Doesn't mean we aren't often troubled. Doesn't mean we aren't often brought under great attack by this adversary of God. In fact, many of you will attest to this. The closer you try to get to Jesus, sometimes the more adversary consequence happens. Satan would love nothing more than the body of Christ to be apathetic, unconcerned, not on fire, cold, and heartless when it comes to walking with God. You did tell God, God, I want you to have all of me. I want, you, I want to walk with you in the intimacy of, of my life. I'm not, I'm not content with just coming to church. God, I need you to, to have all of my life and watch the adversary begin to work heavy on you and me. But still he is a limited adversary because we have the confidence and the text and the truth here is that in his resurrection he makes idle and ineffective the one who had the power over death. I love what uh, Spurgeon writes. He says, Satan repeatedly tried to kill Jesus. 
He tried through the murderous intent of Herod when Jesus was a baby. He tried at the synagogue where they held the trial to kill Jesus. He tried to starve Jesus and he tried to drown Jesus. None of these plans worked until Jesus stood before Pilate and received the sentence of execution. What joy was in the councils of hell. They were convinced they had finally had Jesus right where they wanted him. Yet death, the death of Jesus became defeat for the devil. Hallelujah. Now say amen to that. Doesn't mean we're not bothered. Doesn't mean we're not troubled. Doesn't mean we don't have to put on our armor and fight in the spirit. But we are victorious in Christ. The third thing that he has done, I love this, there in verse 15 it says that he released those, notice, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I've shortened it a little bit to say that he has released those in bondage. That's what he's done. The word there in the original means to change form or to be set free. The King James Version of the Bible says that he has delivered those that were in bondage. He has changed their form. He has set them free. And the, the grammatical in, uh, importance of this is something that I don't fully understand, but it's in what we call the first aorist subjunctive, which means this. Ready? Hold on to your hat. It forbids an action which is not in progress to ever start. Isn't that beautiful? It forbids an action that is not in progress to ever start. In other words, set free. They've been released. And anything that will attempt to, to change that can't even start to happen because this is a done thing. John 8.36 says, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Deliverance. I know earlier years in walking with God, often we would pray for the deliverance of others and Deliverance can take on many forms. You can see someone who's completely overwhelmed by either substance or uh, a lifestyle that is horrific in the eyes of God, and you can watch God deliver them from that to set them free. But here, the text is referring to being delivered from what? A fear. Those who through fear of de their death all their life. As someone once said, fear, the fear of death rules like a tyrant over humanity. Some try to make peace with it by calling it their friend. But in the life of us as believers, death really... <laughs> 
I mean, leaving this life is, is graduation, as we were talking about on uh, Thursday. We took Mike's body to the graveside in Hayward. And afterwards, we were able to go and, and have a meal together and just try to process all that was happening. Talking with someone that, that understands this and is wrestling with life, uh, saving issues themselves. He reminded us that, you know, death can be like graduation. <laughs> it's like graduation time. And I know you may not look at it that way. I mean, it doesn't mean we're not uh, afraid or have fears of, of the dying. It's like someone once said, I, I'm not afraid of death. It's just I'm a little concerned how I'm going to go. Will it be hard and long? Will it be short and quick? Will it be painful? But don't let that fear hold you in bondage is what the author is writing to the Hebrew and the Spirit of God would write to us. That Christ has released you from it. He set you free from it. It's something that has happened and won't happen again Unless we fall prey to God's adversary. Remember, Jesus said, he, he's a thief. You know what thieves do? They steal. They break in when no one's watching, and they try to take what isn't theirs. Jesus said, the thief comes only to destroy and kill. But I have come that you might have life and it more abundantly. So he has shared in the same. He has, has destroyed him who had the power of death. He has released those that were in bondage. Now what will he do? Quickly, we'll go through this. We find that what he will do is he will give aid to the seed of Abraham. Notice verse 16, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, again the superiority of Christ, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Who is the seed of Abraham? At times, often Bible readers have said, oh, he, the author must be speaking about just is Israel or Jewish people, the seed of Abraham. Not so. Uh, Paul, writing to Rome, uh, to Christians that were in Rome, if you're taking note, in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, he said this, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one Inwardly, the circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And so the seed of Abraham is that one who has chosen to worship the one true living God, who is not seeking to obey rules and regulations outwardly, but rather has inwardly allowed their hearts, the foreskin of their heart, to be cut away, in which now 
they live and serve Christ. If that's you, the text is telling us that he will give you aid. Secondly, what he will do is he will be a merciful and faithful high priest. Notice, we read in verse 17, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. Now, as I said, the letter of Hebrews was written to Hebrews. And Hebrews had a long-running standing, a long-run, how would I phrase that? They had a long time understood the role of the high priest. And what was the role of the high priest in the eyes of the, the Hebrew worshiper? Well, the high priest was the one that was closest to God. The high priest was the one that would receive their uh, offering. If they had come to temple or were to worship God in some way, they would, of course, bring that to the temple and the high priest would receive it. It would be there that they would be, uh, through the Old Testament economy, through the sacrifice of an animal, the blood shed on the altar, that they would then be brought into right standing with God again. And the high priest would facilitate that. Now, in modern Christendom, the role of the priesthood or the idea of a priest someone standing in between God and man has gotten uh, perverted is what I'll use the word. It's become an unbiblical idea that man is to report to a another man who has been ordained as a priest in order to be placed in a right standing with God. Not here in the New Testament. So maybe you know some that have come from a background where that was the case and you understand that, that in certain denominations they adhere to, to that kind of thinking when in fact it's not biblical and what's more important is that we truly understand in the Hebrew mind what the role of the priest actually meant. If you trace it all the way back to Exodus 25, verse 7, when the, the priesthood was initiated by you know, Moses' brother Aaron, and so the priesthood of Aaron was to carry, they wore a garment called the ephod. And on the ephod were 12 stones. And this garment was placed on their shoulders. And the 12 stones represented what? The 12 tribes of Israel, which was summary of all the people nationally. And so in essence, what the priest was to do was to bear on his shoulders the care for the people 
all of them. As he would go before God, he was going with the care of the people. And I love what uh, one commentator wrote. Notice, I'll read it. It says, a high priest wore a breastplate with stones engraved with the names of the tribes of Israel on both his chest and on his shoulders. The high priest was therefore in constant sympathy with the people of God, carrying them on his heart and on his shoulders. Jesus did not wear the high priestly breastplate, but the wound in his chest and the cross on his shoulders are even more eloquent testimony to his heart for us and the work on our behalf. Hallelujah. There's no need for another guy. There's no need to report to a priest for Christ has become a merciful and faithful high priest and he will remain that. Thirdly, and we'll wind it up, he himself will, as we read further in verse 17, make propitiation for the sins of the people. Placed in that role, he makes propitiation for the sins of the people. The King James Version of the Bible says reconciliation. What does it mean? Webster's Dictionary says to restore friendship, harmony, to settle and resolve. In other words, the issue of sin that separates God from man, Christ has come to make the necessary atonement to settle that separation, to resolve that difference, to to make it available for you and I to have beautiful, unbroken, constant fellowship with the very God who created us. Hallelujah. He gives aid to you and I. He has borne us to the Father. He has made the atonement. And finally, we get the promise here in verse 18 that he himself will also be able to aid those who are tempted. In that he was tempted, able to aid. What does the word mean? It means to relieve and to help. To relieve and to help. He is able to give you and I relief when we are tempted. He is able to give you and I help when we are tempted. What is temptation? Temptation is that thought, word, or deed that goes against the ways in which God would have us to Think, speak, or act. So when we are tempted to think, speak, or act in a way in which that does not bring glory to God, because after all, we, we came to faith in Christ. We said, I know I'm a sinner, God. I ask you to forgive me. I sin. We, I know your son, Jesus Christ, died for me on the cross. Will you come and... Take over in my life and live your life out through me. Oops, 
Who was that that did that unholy thing? Oh, that was me. Oh, God. And remember what Paul said in his letter to the Romans. He says, that which I don't want to do, I do. That which I do not want to, you know, I do want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Knowing that no one here this morning deals with temptation. I'm so glad you don't. And you're watching at home, you don't deal with it either. So this is absolutely for some other crowd of people, right? And the promise is, is that when we are tempted, he is able to relieve. He is able to help. Yes. Because he has made propitiation. He has reconciled the thing that has separated us from God's sin. He remains faithful in that he carried us on his shoulders and bears us in his hands. He has given aid to everyone who is inwardly a Jew. In other words, born again. He has released those who have been in fear of bondage all their lifetime. He destroyed, made ineffective and idle the power of Satan over the life of the child of God and he has shared in flesh and blood just like we. He himself, what he has done and what he will do. I hope that encourages you to go forward in the confidence and in the strength of what our Savior has done and who he is. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for these fundamental truths that the writer of Hebrews has put down so that every reader would know, every one who is seeking the truth would be able to see it and, and read it and have it written upon the tablet of their heart. And this morning, Lord, it is an assurance to us. It's an encouragement to us. It is strength to us to be reminded not only of what you've already done, but what you've promised to do on our behalf. Lord, we're so thankful this morning that you didn't leave us and you've promised never to leave us, never to forsake us, and that you are faithful even when we are not, Lord. Hallelujah for that. We ask you to guide us through the week ahead. To fill us with your spirit. To give us a heart like yours. And should you find us willing, Lord, would you work a very 
special and new work in our lives as you make us a little more like you. For we ask it in Jesus' name.